Ok, parfait. Sometimes in conversations with students, we get to the word of bias and confirmation bias. Yes, you know, <laughs> there comes a phase of the research process where it is true that we are sort of warring against bias. We are trying to find counter-arguments and we're trying to stress test and so forth. And we're worried about just confirming a pre-existing notion. But there is a phase in the beginning where you have to kind of make friends and almost give thanks to bias. Another word for bias is constitution, meaning the constitution of you as a thinker, as a human being, as a researcher is the reason that you are noticing anything at all. If you were a true tabula rasa, this just absolutely inert and <laughs> totally zen figure, you would either notice nothing or everything. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai and I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Today we have two guests on the podcast, Tom Mullaney and Chris Ray. Tom is a professor of history at Stanford University and the Kluge Chair in Technology and Society at the Library of Congress. He's the author of several books, including The Chinese Typewriter. Chris is a professor of Asian Studies at the University of British Columbia, and he's best known for his book, The Age of Irreverence, A New History of Laughter in China. Tom and Chris published a book last year called Where Research Begins, Choosing a Research Project that Matters to You and the World. And while there are so many books that tell you how to do research once you have the idea, their book is unique because it actually helps you figure out what to research in the first place, how to find a compelling problem to investigate, one that really matters to you. And then, of course, how to design the research project so that the results will also matter to anyone else. So, first of all, welcome, Tom and Chris. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Yeah. So, Tom and Chris, we want to get started by saying this is a really interesting book. I, I know that you two are centered in the humanities, and the, the two of us, Martin and I, we're in the, the sciences. But there's so much that's in common between the two sides of the academy, and specifically like where you find a question is, is a theme that's universal. And in your book, you talk about a self-centered view of the research. In other words, when you choose a problem, it has to be something that first and foremost matters to you. So, Tom, perhaps you want to explain this manifesto? Sure, sure. So the original name for the book that we had long contemplated, we worked on this in secret, Chris and I, for over a decade. And the original working title was Self-Centered Research. And, you know, in the beginning of the book, we go to lengths to try to explain this does not mean self-absorbed. It doesn't selfish. mean egotistical, selfish. Right. It simply means that the researcher is really standing over their own center of gravity. They've got their center of gravity over top in the sense, as you said, that the problem that they are working on is not just a creative or neat idea they came up with one day that is a passing fancy, neither is it something that their advisor or some external force assigned to them. It comes from an instinctual, very personal place. Mm. 
And that's really the ball game in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to give two examples, I think we all know from research projects that last any longer than a few months, that there are a lot of long winters in research right. where you're not receiving applauds or you know, high fives from the outside world. It's the long middle part of the marathon or the hike. Right. And what gets you through that? What gets you through those long winters, if not the fact that the problem you're working on is both about the world outside yourself, but also about something fundamental to yourself? You know, from the humanities perspective, this relationship is a bit more visible or conspicuous. People will come to PhD programs or honors thesis and will sometimes say out loud, if they're self-aware, why it is that they care about a particular issue. And we try to help them get to the place of understanding what their horse is in that race. But we've discovered it is the same thing on the other side of the fence, so to speak. Yeah. So Chris, maybe you want to add a little bit on that. Tom was talking about the long winters of research, but you could also think that maybe your supervisor could give you a nice project where you're going to make progress and where you're assured that there's going to be some publication at the end so everybody would be happy. So why is that not the way to do it? Well, I don't know if you've ever told a student, student, like, go fill a gap in the literature. And this is a, I think, really common, well-meaning metaphor, but one that is, I think, wrong-headed in a lot of ways. Because it's yeah. not like we're just kind of going down the road of research and we spot a pothole and <laughs> our job is to fill in the pothole. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think fields are really structured that way. It's more like you have this vast void of space and then you have a few stars where these studies have appeared. And maybe you can link yours to theirs in a constellation, but um, the field is really mostly gaps. And mm. if you use that metaphor, it still begs the question, why are you filling this gap instead of that one? Right, and, there are a million like, it, gaps. There are a million gaps. There are a million gaps. It's all gaps. Uh, it's, it's all gaps. It's infinite gaps. I have to admit, I don't read a lot of articles in the journal Genome Biology. I am mostly in... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in modern Chinese Shame literature and like film studies. But when you sent me your article about what is a question and yeah. had that line about the single greatest misunderstanding about science by the public is that scientists solve problems. In reality, scientists are primarily concerned with creating them. I feel like you could take out science and scientists and put in humanities and humanists and it would work equally well because creating a problem is something that can engage you for this project and for a career. And so mm -hmm. I feel like you need to find what that problem is. Yeah, and you know, the knowledge gap, it's used all the time. It's used by educators. Supposedly, it's to motivate them, but I totally agree with you. It's anything but motivating. I think that the knowledge gap uh, meme, as we can call it, it's good for grant writing and science communication. You know, it's a nice story. There is this gap. And our intention is to fill it. Like, it's such a simple story anyone can buy into. Except it's just not the way things work. Not only does it not motivate you sufficiently to get through the project winters, but also it's just an inaccurate view of how the process actually works. Because you sort of discover the question, you find what you really want, and it's not something that you knew ahead of time. Yeah. I was the stereotypical music, math language sort of mindset. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you go through middle school and high school and you go through leading up to, say, college-level mathematics and, and college-level physics. And there's something about, understandably, the curriculum at that point, which is 
we're always solving for roughly one unknown variable at a time, or you know, maybe it gets a little bit more complex than that. But the notion is, is that the problem or the question is there. You have been given the question, and now you have to solve for the one unknown piece of it. And when most people enter into college, I think it's college where it generally happens, and maybe grad school in some fields, they realize that that's not actually where the interesting work happens. The most interesting problems and questions out there haven't even been articulated yet. They haven't even been put into an equation form to solve in the first place. And I think that that's mind-blowing when someone realizes what mathematics really (laughs) looks like at the bleeding edge of mathematics. But for that matter, what engineering looks like, what history looks like, what literary studies, the bleeding edge of all of these fields, what they are in fact building are questions and problems. And what defines the difference between a skilled researcher and a less skilled researcher is the quality of the build of the question. In the book, you tell a story that a student speaks in fancy language and has a very polished description of what they want to study, but you prod them into getting at what exactly is interesting for them about it. It was a history of modern China class. It really could have been any class, though, because it happens all the time. But the student said, you know, for my final project for the class, I'd like to write on feng shui and, you know, geomancy in Chinese tradition and its relationship to modern China. I said, okay, that's, you know, that's great. It's always really important in these conversations to be supportive. You're not trying to confirm everything that they say, but you are basically leaving space for what they have to say. Mm -hmm. But then the next question is, okay, well, you know, that's one of a near infinite number of things (laughs) in theory you could have done. And so I'm just curious why that one. And at that point, like we write about in the book, it was just SAT vocabulary, gaps in the literature, the conflict between tradition and modernity. And so I listen and then just come back to the question and say, that's all fine and good. But in theory, if you wanted to study tradition and modernity, let's just say, there are still (laughs) an Mm -hmm. infinite number of things you could have done. So long story short, she eventually, I guess, trusts the situation, allows herself to be momentarily vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and just says out loud, you know, listen, my mom... And I was like, okay, suddenly we're talking about your family. No, so something else has changed. Yeah, something just changed. Yeah. So my mom is the most logical, rational person. I think she was a lawyer. She's the most rational person I've ever met in my whole life. And she believes in feng shui. And I just don't get that. And mm. suddenly we come back to this place that isn't about historiography and interventions in the literature and gaps. It's about one of the most fundamental things that most human beings go through, which is trying to understand their family, their parents, let's say, as human beings. Mm. And so suddenly we had a toehold. We had the ability to move through a series of conversations. When you guide someone through that process, it's really important that they understand, okay, you don't have to write about your mom in the final paper. You don't have to write some sort of autobiographical introduction. Your paper will look like a conventional paper. Sure, sure. It will just be much, much better for this conversation than if we had not had this conversation. So you two, Tom and Chris, you have this hypothesis. It's called the self-centered research hypothesis that when you channel into 
these personal experiences, when you channel into your personal world, then for some reason, you can get at better questions. What is it about those things that lead you to ask better academic questions? I think it's also really important to clarify that self-centered research is not necessarily about just going deeper and deeper into your own autobiography or your own personal history. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we emphasize in the book as being the root of a lot of great questions is what you notice. And so we put a lot of emphasis on just giving yourself permission to notice what you are noticing when you come into contact with a source, when you hear a lecture, when you are thinking about a topic, because a lot of people will skip that. Mm -hmm. And it's really often at that moment, especially early in the process, when you're quite ignorant of the thing you want to research, right? All good research really depends on ignorance, but it also depends on you being vulnerable enough to recognize that. Hmm. Sometimes you need to generate many, many questions at the beginning. If you can kind of print out your mind and print out your curiosities related to that source, related to that topic, you can then go back and kind of step outside yourself and try to say, if I were someone else reading through this, all of this constellation of questions, do they have a center? Like, do they have a focus? Do they trend in a certain direction? Hmm. Or is there some like magnet that seems to be pulling the researcher in one way? And so the book is really structured around a bunch of exercises like that. Mm -hmm. You can do either by yourself or sometimes even better with someone else who will have that distance. And it's a way to try to get at why this and why not that. Because what yeah. you're eventually getting at is how you will come up with something original based on what you noticed. But I think that it often requires the person just trusting themselves to notice what they're noticing in the first place. Yeah, there's a sentence in the book, and I'm still thinking about it and how to use it in my own experience of the scientific process. And that's whenever your mind takes notice of something, anything, you can be certain that there is a question there. I think that's a very interesting sentence. I'm not sure if I'm convinced it's true, but it's very tempting to play with that. Yeah, brilliant questions are not the products of the minds of brilliant people. Brilliant questions are happening all the time. Brilliant acts of noticing are happening mm. all the time. What the major distinction between researchers and the rest of us is these little micro decisions that are made in the microseconds that follow an act of taking notice of something, which is yeah. that the researcher maybe out of ego, maybe out of their socioeconomic position and their sense of, you know, that my mind matters and my thoughts matter. And I've been conditioned to believe that the thoughts that come out of my head have value. But whatever the reason is, there is a tiny subset of people who have been conditioned to notice and take notice of the fact that they noticed and then take the next steps of inquiring. So one story is the economic theory of shrinkflation. So, you know, the form of inflation that is not achieved through a pricing mechanism that milk costs 10 cents more and then 10 cents more or something of that nature, but of the slight reduction of the total quantity of, say, cereal in a package or yogurt in a yogurt container. And the general sense here is there are probably thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, potentially, who took notice of the fact that the potato chip they're holding in their hand today feels slightly different than the potato chip they remember from childhood or that they remember from a few years ago. 
mm-hmm. or that someone looks at the box and just has taken notice that there doesn't seem to be as much cereal in the cereal box as before. That itself is the act of noticing, but it took someone to notice that and then to not dismiss it as absurd or who am I to ask this, or I'm sure someone much smarter than me has answered this, but to actually look into it and then to look into it systematically and to discover, lo and behold, that manufacturers were passing on costs to the consumer through an entirely different mechanism. And so shrinkflation comes from an act of noticing followed by an act of noticing that something has been recognized and then pursuing it. And that's this place where as a society, we lose a tragic number of potentially brilliant researchers out there who don't take that next step or have been conditioned against taking that next step for a variety of reasons. That's interesting. You know, in the book, you also talk about boredom and how if you see something And it seems like you should be interested in it because you've already declared that it's part of your topic, but you don't find it interesting at all. You find it boring. You should actually take note of that. I want to know, what is your take on how to encourage students to have this kind of attitude of, uh, oh, this is boring? You know, maybe in light of cultural trends that we're not supposed to say that something is boring. We're supposed to be accepting of everything. But maybe we do need to be opinionated and to say, this is boring. I don't care what you think. This is boring to me. And that's fine because it all acts in the service of tuning what you're noticing. And that will lead you to an interesting insight. I totally disagree. I don't think we should be opinionated at all. <laughs> that's <laughs> but, good. That's good. <laughs> but, but I think that acknowledging one's own boredom is a form of honesty that is a pretty good imperative for a researcher. Hmm. Because if you go to a conference, there are going to be a dozen papers on your topic or your field. You may not be interested in all of them. And so uh, somebody who hasn't taken note of their boredom hmm. may think, oh, this person is dealing with my problem but doing it badly. When in fact, this person may just be in a different problem collective, so to speak. Like they may be dealing with issues that are different from yours. And so you can actually be a more egalitarian and kind of empathetic researcher if you realize that there are people working on different problems within the same topic. Okay, but here's the central thing that bugs me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm totally with you guys and I totally buy into it. I've experienced it myself that if I'm viscerally connected to the question then it's going to move forward. So I think that choosing a topic that you can connect with is is so important. But the thing that bugs me is, why is it that that is what's good for knowledge in general? It's not just self-knowledge that produces great work. It's the self-knowledge that gets you into the right parts of the library, the right journals, the right conferences, the right conversations, the right writing groups, And that's where the work increases in quality geometrically. It ultimately, the way the metaphor we often use for talking about this book is this book is really, you're meant to sort of use it. And then ideally, if someone goes through the methods and sort of follows them as quickly as possible, gets you back to whatever research method books and articles and techniques are already there in your field in order to do the rest of the journey, so to speak. But there's this tiny fork in the road right at the beginning of projects where people can take the wrong turn and get lost for years, if not forever. So you're saying if we find 
the, the question that we're really interested in, that really gets our heart jumping, then that's the correct compass for finding in the sphere of knowledge what needs to also be addressed. It is a powerful compass that we don't acknowledge is there. Yeah. It's just so interesting because, you know, a devil's advocate could say, actually, if we wanted knowledge to grow that's better for humanity, whatever that means, <laughs> then it would be better if actually you, the student, would work on the project that I, the professor, hand down to you instead of just what you're interested in. That's what I thought until the exchange with Yukiko, Professor Yamashita at MIT, you know, why study satellite DNA? And it turns out that when you sit down with quantum physicists, when you sit down with cell biologists, when you sit down with cosmologists, when you sit down with nephrologists, you know, if they're really sort of thriving, and especially those that are sort of at the top of their game, they're changing yeah. fields, they're not research assistants. <laughs> they are working on something that has this intrinsic dimension to it. You know, it's probably harder to put into words about what is it about non-coding portions of the human genome that produces this resonant factor. It's not the same thing as saying, my mother lived through the war, and so I'm interested in studying the war. It's definitely not that obvious or explicit, I would guess, yeah. but it's there. It's there. Can I mention the second half of our book is actually called Get Over Yourself? And so <laughs> the first part is called Become a Self-Centered Researcher, but a lot of what we attend to is also not just stay in your box and like go into the room and close the door and think your thoughts. There is some introspection involved. We think that is key. But part of the point is that even as you're trying to reconcile your interests with that of the field or the research community, that you maintain your center. Because what we've seen again and again is me, professor, you, student, and like I tell you what's important, and mm -hmm. you're immediately knocked off balance. And all of your intuitions, you just kind of bury them. And this happens again and again, and there's so many authoritative voices out in the field. It's much better if someone has the type of self-confidence and kind of self-awareness to view all of these and take in all of these outside opinions and advice, much of which is good, with equanimity and decide which to accept and which to reject. And again, one of the fundamental problems we all face is there are so many good directions we could potentially go. Yes. Yeah. At the end of the day, we still have to choose one. And if you are a lab assistant today, you may be a lab head tomorrow. And then it's on you. Like You can't always just look to a higher authority to tell you what to yeah. do. Right. And this is maybe more of an intuitive discovery. It can be a lot of fun to do these exercises with undergraduates or even high school students who feel totally uninhibited and like unintimidated by authority and will spit out these naive, extremely creative ideas. But there's a lot of inhibition that can mm -hmm. be inculcated into people as they move through their careers mm, and they yeah. are, get into a pattern of deferring to authority. So I think it's really important to try to preserve a little bit of that it's kind of a vulnerable self-confidence. I'm not sure how to describe it. Yeah. But it's one that if you can carry that with you, you can potentially do really powerful things. And ultimately, the authority that we defer yeah. to is almost language itself. When students try to impress me with their language, they are trying to impress me as sort of the authority figure in the world. But really, sure. the authority that they are obeying is language. There is this turning point where the ability to perform intelligence becomes a major inhibition to the kind of thinking that is essential for good research. You can be over-articulate. You can be too articulate for your own good. 
So that's also one thing that I noticed you emphasize in the book, that you have to give yourself permission to write down things or to say things that may sound stupid or that may sound inarticulate. And I love this term, vulnerable self-confidence. You know, it sounds almost like a paradox, but not really. If you think about it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The writing down is partly also because it's just impossible to recapture what you thought or felt when you came into a source for the first time and before you delve into the literature. It's very easy. Like You see the source, and before you even give yourself permission to think about it, you go read everything that's been written on the subject. Right. And then you kind of have forgotten by that point what you originally thought. So if you yeah. do allow yourself to write the stuff down, then you can kind of have a dialogue with your past mm. self from that more knowledgeable perspective. Yeah, so I think it's more or less the same thing as what Uri Alon in a previous episode called timed ignorance. So yeah. where he was saying mm -hmm. if, he, if he moves right. into a new field where he doesn't really know everything, he prefers to actually not read too much from the field initially so that he can actually understand what are his own questions, right? What does he think about things? Right. And only after he had this time to build his own worldview of this field, he would actually look in more detail about what the people who are traditionally in that field actually have to say. Yeah, it's really beautiful the way you two actually make it into two pillars of the book. Like you say, Chris, the first pillar is the self-centered aspect, how you yourself think about a certain topic. What are you bringing to the table, essentially? And then the second pillar is now interfacing with the world and see how that fits in with what other people are thinking. And you guys talk about this term, the problem collective. So Chris, maybe I can ask you to talk a little bit about what the problem collective is. The, the problem collective is different than your field. And the way we phrase it is like your field kind of identifies you and accepts you into their field and you know their departments and their right. professorships. No, you're the a historian. The you're an Asian scientist. Exactly. A studies person. You're... Right. And so we have this kind of mental image of the type and what they do. Right. But sometimes your closest intellectual kindred may not be in your field per se. They may be working on a similar problem. And when you come across their study, it just resonates with you so strongly. It's like the book on your shelf that nobody ever imagined would be there. And so how do we find these people? And again, they could be living or dead. And they could be, you know, they could be in working on a different part of the world. And so a lot of what we're trying to get at is first of all, identify that there does exist such a thing as a group of people, and we call it a collective because it's a very loose assortment, who are interested in your problem. And so your job is partly to find them. Maybe, Chris, you can give an example of a problem that you have worked on just to demonstrate how the problem collective could include members that are studying totally different things. Well, for example, I wasn't working on French literature when I was trying to write a history of laughter in China, but I was really struck by this book, How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. <laughs> it's written by a French literary critic. And where he's very title. interested. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he says, like, we need to be honest. I feel like I could already talk about that book. 
You can, you can. <laughs> They're come on to readers on the back covers. If you don't read one book this year, make it this one. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, this is not a book about humor. It's not a book about China. It's a very funny book. And it's also one that's asking us to be honest about something as fundamental as what it means to read. Because there are books that we forget. Mm. There are books that we skim. And there are books like the one that you have now heard about that you've heard about, but you haven't actually read. Mm -hmm. And so that type of um, categorization uh, logic was really very influential to me in thinking about something completely unrelated, about like how Chinese people have categorized what's funny and talked about what's funny. Yeah, so that's part of your problem collective, that book. Exactly, yes. So, you know, one thing I'm wondering about, your book is written primarily with uh, students in mind that have to think about their first research project. But I think the concepts in there and the ideas are very general. So when you choose a project for yourself to work on, do you do it along exactly the same lines or is there a difference? I think it's the same lines. I mean, we needed to write, you know, with a particular voice or audience. And so I think it made most sense to write the book as if this is an honors thesis writer or maybe a PhD student. But in all honesty, the book is thought of for anyone who hasn't identified their first problem or is between problems because our problems change. There's a sort of continental drift to our problems. Maybe someone works for it over 15 years, but then they detect that it no longer has the same hold over them. And now, my gosh, I'm sort of back at square one in trying to figure out what's next. And so I, to this day, remember the utter feeling of being lost after the publication of my first book, because I was sort of a, a person without a country at that point when I was mm. imagining what's next. And it was the same kind of exercises. So I I had ideas, and I remember giving conference talks. I had another idea, and I put together fellowship proposals. And in both cases, in terms of external cues and applauds, both were just rock solid. I mean, this one project, any granting organization just was like, here, take what you want. Mm. Oh, but cool. in, in nice. exactly, I had to say no to that. I did a edited volume, a conference out of that. But when I had to sort of look in the mirror and say, is this the next 15 years? Is this the thing that gets me through those winters? And the answer was just an unmistakable no. So you felt you had done that? You felt you, you wanted well, something? Well, no, really? I, it was really, a, it was, this conference was really a sort of test balloon, not to see if mm -hmm. the idea itself had merit. I think the idea itself had merit. It just wasn't, you know, I, I, I take very seriously the idea that I'm going to be in the ground one day and that you only get so many opportunities to to write and to think and to teach and to work through these things. And so, hmm. you know, good enough is not good enough. And so it was a risk, but the project that ultimately, you know, I waited for and searched for became one that was unmistakable. It was absolutely resonant with something going on in me. It, I had a problem with it, to put it very simply. Mm -hmm. And because I had a problem with it, I could live through 15 years of various winters and summers and springs with it. It was never just enough to fill the gap. I filled the gap 10 years ago. If I was just going to fill a gap, I could have stopped after five years. But I wasn't just right. filling a gap. I was answering a problem. 
and it's an urgent problem, and I got to answer this problem for myself along with the world outside. And it won the top prize in my field in no small part because every ounce of me was in it. But now that problem's gone. So I'm kind of back there again, even Mm -hmm. as we speak right now. And so I find myself going back into the book to try to humble myself again and again and again and say, let's actually look through what Chris and I wrote down. You guys say that the way to find a problem is to look for things that really nag you, that really disturb you. Knowing the problem is also one of the ways that you can make that decision about when to finish this project. Because that's something we all struggle with as well. It's like, when is the project really done? And so if nothing is nagging at you again, that might be symptomatic of that you've reached that moment of resolution and are ready to move on. Whereas if it's still nagging you, maybe there is some unfinished business. But the flip side of it is that, you know, we get so many projects handed to us or offered to us. And so I think we all have to decide, like, do I want to make this project handed to me my own? Or do I want to get away from this and go do something else? And we hand projects to ourselves. I mean, all our students are so smart. I mean, any halfway engaged human being in the world is coming up with a lot of neat ideas. And this comes back to the compass question. What is the compass that we use to discern between 100 cool ideas? There's no metric by which to make the decision. There's one tiny story, if I could share it. I went to Spain, I went to Barcelona a few years ago, and I went, like everyone that goes to Barcelona, into Sagrada Familia. And I walked into it, and I started to weep, just Hmm. immediately. And this comes back to the boredom question. I am bored by sculpture. Sculpture has always bored me. But I love blueprints and diagrams and painting and schematics and Bezier curves and taxonomy and grids and classification and stuff. And it dawned on me when I walked into that cathedral that I had spent my entire life with the assumption that the only way that humans and human societies can build monumental things is through a sort of worship of the grid. Fine, there are things that are not grid-like that exist, but that's like watercolor, and that's sculpture, Mm. and that's, you know, these sort of craft-like small-scale things. And you can't build New York City except through the worship of the grid. And here I walk (laughs) into this cathedral, which proved me wrong. Not in the sense that it wasn't, there is a grid at work, you know, but it was almost using the grid against itself. I've heard this cathedral described as imagine a Gothic cathedral that then was put on the bottom of the ocean and let to just accumulate, (laughs) you know, uh, barnacles for 500 years. And then it was brought out of the water and shown back to the world. It's this otherworldly place that made me realize the underlying problem or assumption that I've been carrying around through high school, college, grad school, throughout all of the projects, was this adulation with the grid. And suddenly I realized at that moment that maybe my fascination and utter adulation of the grid was itself dying, and that I was growing as a thinker, as a person, and that I'm ready for whatever my next problem is. But I don't know what it is. I was wondering when you were telling the story, if you think it will have an influence on the research that you're doing. This it experience. makes me want to look back at everything I have mm-hmm. dismissed. You know, Chris and I talk about let boredom be your teacher, let boredom be your guide. The most immediate form of boredom that every student and researcher identifies, we talk about in the book, is like Chris was saying, going to a talk 
by someone, quote unquote, working on your topic that bores you. But there's this next zone and a much larger zone of boredom, which is the zone of boredom that's just the everyday boredoms of life. I don't like sculpture. Hockey bores me. Or whatever, you know, whatever it is bores me. This sort of disposition towards life. Normally, hey, it's good. we it's imagine good boredom. Well, it's actually an incredible opportunity. It's as valuable as saying hockey really, really excites me. It's an equally valuable statement to say that I have absolutely no interest in Baroque classical music or something of that nature. That is an opportunity mm. to ask why. And what it very well might turn out to be is not in fact that hockey or sculpture, bro, classical music, whatever, or watercolor actually bores you. It's that you have a working model of what this stuff represents that is at odds with empirical reality and that it's an opportunity to get to a new place that will open doors to you. And so every day is this kind of opportunity in everyday acts of noticing, but also everyday acts of boredom. And uh, it's nice that you mentioned a cathedral, Tom. I hadn't heard that story before because I do feel research does involve a certain amount of faith. And maybe mm. the most faith-based part of the book is about the problem collective, that it exists and that it is findable. I remember after the book was published, we sent a copy to one of Tom's former colleagues, Sam Weinberg, from the School of Education. And he sent back this theoretical note from the Journal of Cognitive Science from 1979, uh -huh. just called Problem Finding, a Theoretical Note by J.W. Getzels, who I'd never heard of. This this five-page thing where he talks about the problem of the problem. And it's amazing. Like he asks, need problems be found, right? There's so many problems out there. And it uh, confirmed for me that there is a problem collective out there. I mean, we wrote where research begins because we had been nagged for, you know, well on 20 years. And like, how do you talk about research? How do you figure out what is the right project for you? And mm. here's a guy from a completely different field, a journal I would never read usually, where we get confirmation that there are other people out there who care about what we care about. And we just need to keep talking to other people about what we're doing, what we're interested in, be honest about it. And sometimes people will reciprocate in ways that will open up new avenues for explorations. Yeah. And you know, I think we also found a problem collective here today between the four of us, because you two are interested in, in this topic of where research begins and you come at it from the humanities. And Martin and I, we are also interested in where ideas come from. We come at it from the sciences, but I think we're finding universality. I think that this notion of uh, self-centered research really resonates with us. Yeah, there's an interesting relationship. Sometimes in conversations with students, we get to the word of bias and confirmation bias. And I've taken to just sure. explaining that, yes, you know, <laughs> there comes a phase of the research process where it is true that we are sort of warring against bias. We are trying to find counter arguments and we're trying to stress test and so forth. And we're worried about just confirming a pre-existing notion. But there is a phase in the beginning where 
you have to kind of make friends and almost give thanks to bias. Another word for bias is constitution, meaning the constitution of you as a thinker, as a human being, as a researcher mm. is the reason that you are noticing anything at all. If you were a true tabula rasa, this just absolutely inert and <laughs> totally Zen figure, you would either notice nothing or everything, but we're not. We've got little cracks and crevices, and we've got blemishes and imperfections, and we've off balance in certain kinds of ways. We stumble into the world and we bump into certain things and we notice certain things. And like, thank heavens for that, because that's the beginning of the process. And so the first part of the book, more and more for me, I keep thinking of is, you know, before you suit up and go to war against bias and imagine that what bias means is simply wrong or something of this nature, right. you actually want to kind of give thanks and say, thanks for getting me <laughs> to this place. <laughs> and then from yeah. here is where, of course, I don't want to just produce a preordained, a pre-given conclusion. That's where all of the classic metaphors are true but not in the very beginning. In the beginning, confirmation yeah. bias, strangely, is our friend. I think Isai and I, we would totally agree with this. You know, yeah. we have this distinction between night signs where we come up with the ideas, where we improvise, and day signs where we test the ideas in the light of hmm. data. And, yeah. you know, night signs is probably most related to your area where you find questions, where you find your problem. And... In that phase, bias can be actually very useful, right? It's, it's what drives you. It's just that when you move to day signs, when you actually have to test it, that you have to be honest with the data and see, you know, does my idea actually make sense when I contrast it with reality? It's the strange irony. I love the idea of night and day. One does not simply reconfirm the other, even though it's driven by the other. And that's something that is very hard to explain, I think, to especially early career young researchers who understand those two things as antithetical. They do not go together in a single person when, in fact, they yeah. do. And I think it requires some underscoring that, you know, the conversation has gotten very philosophical very <laughs> fast, but there are actually some practical ways that you can stimulate this or you can stay in that zone of night science till you get the idea that you want to run with. And mm -hmm. it can be as simple as just asking someone, what led you to that idea? What did you read? What did you think? So that you're not immediately shutting someone down because their facts are incorrect, but you are trying to tease out or to stimulate them to think further and to be more introspective. And so this can be really powerful, especially in a collective session, and it can produce amazing results. This notion of the duality of introspection but then also checking in with your problem collective is such a useful dichotomy. So I think this was a really stimulating conversation. And, and while it's time to wrap up, I know I'll be thinking about it for the rest of the day. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for having us and for talking with us about this. It's pretty wonderful. And in particular, because we're coming at it just from different highways, but coming to the same venue from different yeah. paths. It's great. That's fascinating to see how the same principles apply in very, very different fields. So I, I hope this is really just a beginning, and this has really been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we're part of the same problem collective, right? So we should keep talking. Yeah, you know what struck me the most is just how seamless it was to talk across 
the barrier of uh, science and humanities, right? I think we were already primed by reading your book that it's really the same process as uh, Yukiko from MIT also noticed. So I agree with Chris, this should only be the beginning. Thank you.